you'd open your Bible with me to Hebrews chapter 3, Hebrews chapter 3, and we're going to read uh, through chapter 4, verse 13, a little longer text than usual. Just, um, there's different ways, of course, to preach through this letter. It's packed with uh, wonderful things, and um, I, I consider breaking it down into smaller pieces, but I think it's, sometimes it's helpful to remember it's a letter, it's not a collection of sermon texts. Uh, and um, when, when, we, when we read it as a letter and take bigger portions, I think we get sometimes a little better sense of how it would sound and, and um, how it would be heard by the original audience. And so we're going to be doing then a, a bit longer text this morning, uh, beginning chapter 3, verse 1. The writer remembers, is uh, he's writing to people, uh, probably... Uh, Jewish Christians living in Rome, or at least they had been living in Rome, there was uh, persecution is taking place, they're suffering, and they're tired. And uh, he's going to write to encourage them this morning. Let's give our attention to God's word, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. And I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an, un, an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest as he had said... 
I, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today. Saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Let's bow our heads and ask the Lord's blessing. Oh God in heaven, we thank you that this is today, a day of grace, a day of good news, but Lord, also a day for us to examine our hearts. We pray that your spirit would help us and that you would open this word to us so that we could hear our Savior speaking to us. Father, I pray that you would accomplish your purposes for good among us today. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. I have to confess that as a minister, every once in a while, I will come to a text, and um, i got to sit and think and pray for a while on uh, how do I really make that text relevant. Uh, all of God's Word, of course, is relevant. Uh, it's all um, for our edification and teaching and training and righteousness, but some truths don't feel immediately relevant. Take, for instance, the Trinity. We believe it is true, but if I would ask you, um, tell me how, what difference will the doctrine of the Trinity make in your life this coming Wednesday, I think you would have to sit and think and pray for a little bit to think about, okay, what, what difference does the doctrine of the Trinity really make for Wednesday? Well, this morning's text doesn't have those complications because this is a text for weary Christians. And if there's anything that maybe defines American Christians, there's a weariness about American Christians. There's a weariness about our life in general as we're flying around trying to live the American dream or just trying to keep ends together. Um, so there's a, there's a tiredness. We're working long hours. We've got a lot of responsibilities. There's, there's a lot to do. Uh, there's, there's not a lot of deep rest we don't have moments of extended solitude and quiet. In fact, uh, the word quiet uh, for some of us just seems like a far-off dream. A hope somewhere, sometime could even bring tears to your eyes. If I could just have some quiet. That's, that's how we live. And so this is not a text that's difficult for us to, uh, to embrace or, or, or sense that there's something here the Lord has for us. This is, a, again, a, a text written to people who are they're tired. Life is hard. Persecution is, is difficult. And people are starting to, <coughs> excuse me, 
People are starting to question whether it's, it's worth it. Maybe we should have just stayed uh, Jewish. The Jews were God's people. They had Moses, and they have the law, they have the tradition, they have the community, and um, life wasn't so bad then. Maybe we could, we could sort of be a blend of Christian Jews, but we can just sort of um, lessen the, the, the Christian emphasis of things and, and not bear the brunt of the persecution that we're experiencing. It hadn't always been this way. There had been a time in their life where they had been excited to be known as Christians, and, and they had even uh, joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. The writer reminds them of that in chapter 10. <clears throat> Remember the former days. When, when you gladly suffered and, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Well, how did that happen? How, how do you accept the joyful plundering of your new truck or your nicely uh, newly remodeled home or uh, whatever it might be? How do you joyfully accept that? Well, the writer says in Hebrews chapter 10 that they accepted it because they knew that they themselves had a better possession and lasting one. You can have this whole world, just give me Jesus. If I have Jesus, we're going to be fine. There is a, there is a possession that this world knows nothing about, a, a, a lasting possession, a better possession that's ours in Jesus Christ. And, and so uh, have the stuff. You can't take the things that ultimately matter. And so that was the joy they knew. Well, what happened to that joy? How come now they're, they're so dull of hearing, chapter 5? How come now they're um, tempted to give up? Well, the answer is they've forgotten about the better possession. The trials and difficulties of their life uh, have, have worked in them the way they often do in our lives as well. And, and it refocuses our attention so that, that uh, where we once had our, the horizon of our life filled with the glory of God and the wonder of being a Christian, that horizon's been clouded. And now what we see are the troubles and the trials and the heartaches and the losses. We've lost our clear view of the future. And so the, the, the writer here understands how critically important it is uh, for these people to be strengthened in their faith. They, they need to be refocused in their faith. They need to remember who they are, what God has done for them. They need to get their minds set on Jesus Christ again. And they have to uh, once again engage with their, the rest of God. What is yet to come? The better possession. The writer knows, you see, that Christian joy is, it runs on the jet fuel of anticipation and hope. There is not Christian, uh, lasting, sustaining Christian joy without uh, anticipation, without hope. Paul says, if, if, if only for this life we believed in Christ, we're of all men most to be pitied. If you're, if you're a Christian because you're hoping that Jesus can give you your best life now, you're going to be a very frustrated, disappointed, miserable person. You see, we, we need to have hope. May the God of all hope fill you with joy and peace in believing. In believing what? In believing all that God says He has done and is going to accomplish. You ever notice that um, we, we, we experience this dynamic a, a bit, even um, some of you, I'm sure, are planning vacations. 
Uh, that's a, a popular thing to do in, in uh, Michigan in the wintertime, planning a vacation. I doubt many of you are heading north in the next uh, few months or weeks. Most of you, if you're planning a vacation, you're planning on heading south. Why? Because, well, you want to see the sun and you want to feel the, the warmth of its rays. You want to see green growing things and, and hear birds again and, um, and maybe get your toes in some nice crystal Caribbean water. Oh, doesn't that sound good? Some of you are smiling inside. Researchers have shown that uh, there's something called vacation anticipation. In fact, the Netherlands uh, did, a, someone in the Netherlands did a study on this. And um, I've shown that the, the, the biggest benefit of a vacation isn't the time that you spend on vacation. That the, the biggest benefit of a vacation is found in the eight weeks prior to the vacation where you are planning and anticipating the vacation. That's where the biggest benefit comes, which is why people say it's better to take more shorter vacations because it's the anticipation leading up to the break, even if it's small, that does, has more benefit than the uh, vacation itself. It's called vacation anticipation. And you've, you've experienced that. Maybe on a, we had a few gloomy days this past week. Um, I was recovering from the flu, and um, it, was, it was pretty gray. And I was looking forward to uh, leaving to go to Pasadena, where... Um, I was looking at the weather forecast, and it's, it's 75 to 80 degrees, sunshine every day. You see, it's the anticipation that gets you through the hard times. Well, that's exactly how it works for the Christian life. We need to anticipate something. We need to be looking forward to something. What do we have to look forward to? Well, the writer tells us the first thing we have to look forward to is Jesus a refocusing of our, of our attention and our, our faith. Verse, chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. There is so much good packed into that sentence. Holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, to become a Christian is to be someone who um, is sanctified, not just as an extended process that, that's happening in our life where we're becoming more and more uh, sanctified, more and more like Jesus Christ, but, but the word holy gets attached to you as a defining attribute the moment you come to faith in Jesus Christ, where the righteousness of Jesus Christ is given to you and you become a saint. Paul addresses all of his letters to the saints who are gathered in Corinth or Ephesus, wherever it might be. You're a saint. You're, you're holy. And that's the, it's the most amazing thing that could be said about you. Because it means, you see, that you've received this incredible gift of God. You didn't do it. He did it for you in Jesus Christ. And, and this is the white robe that is required for those who are going to attend the wedding feast of the Lamb. It's the distinguishing characteristic of the new heaven and the new earth. Only holiness will be there. There are holy angels already at the, around the throne of God uh, worshiping the thrice holy God and to, to be Holy, you see, is that means that you belong to that realm, that reality. You share with all of God's saints in the heavenly calling. 
You belong to the new heaven and the new earth. It's already broken in, in a sense, upon you. The kingdom of God is already present. Not yet in its fullness, but already real. It's an amazing thing to be called a holy people. You might think that your life is small and inconsequential. And in the eyes of the world, it is. I mean, who, who really are you? What have you really accomplished? Well, not much. But what does the world know? According to God, the God who created you, knit you together in your mother's womb, the God who redeemed you, gave you to Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world and in the fullness of time sent his son for you and then brought you into this world and gave you a true faith. According to that God, you bear the weight of glory. There's nothing inconsequential about you. In fact, The world doesn't have a category for the glory that belongs to you. As a Christian, angels are astounded at the glory that belongs to you. And it's all found, of course, in Jesus. Consider Jesus. Jesus really is the answer to every meaningful question. What do we need to see about Jesus? What does he tell us about Jesus? Notice your text. He is the apostle and high priest of our confession. Everything that we've learned from our, the, uh, from our apostle, we learn from Jesus. He's the, he's the ambassador, the messenger of good news. Everything we believe, we learn from Jesus. He's the high priest of our confession. Everything that we hope in, in terms of being reconciled to God, our, our, the Father, the holy, holy, holy God, um, everything we hope and believe concerning our reconciliation and our righteousness, it's all found in Jesus. He's the high priest of our confession. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and Jesus' righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame I wholly lean on Jesus' name. My confidence isn't that I I feel a certain way when I have devotions. My confidence is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, bled and died and offered up that sacrifice on my behalf. That's my confidence. That's your confidence. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Consider Jesus, the faithful Son. He was faithful to him who appointed him, faithful to God the Father, who appointed Jesus Christ to be the elder brother who was going to come and rescue us. So loving wisdom of our God, when all was sin and shame, a second Adam to the fight and to the rescue came. That's Jesus. Faithful, faithful Jesus. Faithful over God's house, not as a servant the way Moses was, but as the son, the builder of the house. Worthy of more glory than Moses, the writer says. Now remember, he's writing to Jews. Jews who gloried in being uh, the children of Moses, the followers of, of Moses. And, and the writer is saying, well, yeah, but Moses was, was great as a servant in the house of God, but he doesn't compare to Jesus. Why would you go back to Moses when you have Christ? You have the Son. But here's the clincher. We are his house. You are the house that Jesus is building. He took you a dead rock 
and made you a living stone. And with that living stone, he placed you into the wall of this, of this temple that he's building for the glory of God, a place where God himself will dwell, where his name will rest, his glory abides. Jesus is building today throughout the world from every tongue and tribe and nation. Jesus is building from the, from the, the dirt of sinful lives. He's building this magnificent edifice, the temple of the living God. That's the, the, the whole message of the New Testament. And that's who you then are. The glory of the temple is the glory that belongs to you. This is your identity as a Christian. This is your destiny as a believer. There, there is more glory, beauty, honor, significance belonging to you than any angel will ever know. And you see, the angels will never be heirs with Christ, will they? Angels will never be the bride of Christ. Angels will never be the house of Christ. But you are. You are. They exist as servants. You live eternally as sons. There's a, um, there's a little a, a saying uh, that people say sort of in jest. Um, you know, I'm a pretty big deal. Hopefully they say it in jest. But spiritually speaking, the church of Jesus Christ is a really big deal. It's the biggest deal in the world. If you are a Christian, it's astounding things are true of you. And the writer, you see, is, is forcing his back into their mind. He, he their life was full of trials and heartache and hardship, and it's, and it's long, and, and, they're, and they're just they're wore out. And they've forgotten these things. And so he, he begins in this encouragement by reminding them who they are. And focus your thoughts on Jesus and all that he is and all that he's accomplished. And you belong to him. You're his house. And then he reminds them, secondly, of the tragedy of letting all of that go. We are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. There's an if indeed clause here. Shows up again in verse 14. There's a conditional clause that we need to hear. We, we, we need to hear the, a warning here. There's a gospel warning here. We don't believe once saved, always saved, in the sense that uh, if, if, you, if you've walked the aisle and, and said the sinner's prayer, or you, once, you have a memory of a, a, a spiritual experience at some point in your past, that therefore there's nothing for you to, to, to be concerned about. We, we don't believe that. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible says that we... Um, are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence. Verse 14, we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence. And then he reminds them of a story they would all know very well. It's the story of Israel in the wilderness. He uses the words of Psalm 95, where God declares his displeasure with the Israelites... And they were lost. They didn't get to the land of promise. You remember the story. I mean, 
the tragedy of that story. These are the people that God, that God brought out of Egypt. The, the writer wonderfully goes through it. Who were those with whom he was displeased? Well, it was, it was the people that he brought out of Egypt by his own hand and mighty power. It's the people that he led through the Red Sea. It's the people that he brought to Mount Sinai and gave them his law and his covenant and, and consecrated them as his people. These are the people that he fed in the wilderness with manna and water from a rock. These, these are the people we're talking about, and, and they were there right on the border of the land, the promised land, the land that God had promised to give to Abraham. They were right there. Pharaoh's army was dead and gone. They had manna from heaven. They had Moses as their leader. They had God's own mighty hand as their shield and might, and they didn't get in. They fell in the wilderness. Everybody over the age of 40. They didn't get in. That's a shocking story. When they had all of these things going for them. How do you fail to get into the land of promise if you are the recipient of all of these blessings? Well, in fact, why don't you just turn there quickly in your Bible, Numbers chapter 13 and 14, and we can read it for ourselves, number 13 and 14. I think it's fascinating that the writer reminds the people of this story. I think most American Christians today, I haven't done a survey, but I think most American Christians today would think that this story doesn't really have anything to say to uh, American Christians. There's no real, there's no danger, there's no, there's no threat uh, left for us. Well, okay, um, let, let's see what the writer's doing here. Look at number 13. So here we have the people on the border, and they send out spies, 12 spies. You remember the story. We'll pick it up in verse 25 of chapter 13. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land, and they came to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the people of the, uh, Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. It really was flowing with milk and honey. They told them, we came to this land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides... We saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites and Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are, all, we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought, back, uh, they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak who come from the Nephilim. And we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seem to them. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? 
Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. What was the crime that made God say, they always go astray in their heart and they've not known my ways and I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. It wasn't the golden calf. They survived the golden calf. This was the crime. The awful thing that they did, you see, was not some flagrant, perverse disobedience against the moral law of God. They did that numerous times, but that isn't the thing that, that, that made them fall in the wilderness. What made them fall in the wilderness was this disobedience they didn't believe. They didn't believe that he who began a good work in them was able to carry it on to completion. When they saw the, the, the Nephilim, the, the great warriors of the land and the fortified cities, they said to themselves, right? They said to themselves, our God is not sufficient. Our God is not able. Sure, he brought us out of Egypt by a mighty hand. He brought us through the Red Sea on dry ground, but he's not up to this. He's not able to defeat the giants in the land. And so they said, let's go back to Egypt. And the writer applies the lesson immediately, doesn't he? Take care, verse 12, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. He just applies it. Because, you see, we stand like Israel of old right on the border of the promised land. God has already accomplished a magnificent deliverance in Jesus Christ. We, we've already... Um, left the bondage of Egypt and we've already been through the Red Sea of divine judgment and condemnation. The mighty foes of, of death and sin and hell lie buried behind us. God has safely brought us this far and we've got Christ Jesus himself as our leader. The Holy Spirit has been given as a guarantee of what is yet to come. Every aspect of our future ultimate deliverance has been provided for. We're right on the border. But friends, there are dangers on the border. Because apostasy is a real thing. It's not a scare tactic. People do walk away from the faith. People do fall away from the living God. This town is full of folks who used to go to church, who used to profess to believe in Jesus Christ, who used to sing the hymns and used to read their Bibles, but somewhere along the way they decided that it was no longer worth it and they've decided to get comfortable in Egypt. And some of them will even call themselves Christians while they're doing it. The town is full of folks. The Bible says in the last days when, when persecution really comes, Many will fall away. Friends, apostasy happens, and, and it happens to people just like us. It happens to people with, with names and families and eternal souls. It happens in the church. It, do, it doesn't happen in the bowling alley. It doesn't happen at the bar. It happens in the church. And if we think to ourselves that it, it, it couldn't happen here, well, we're just deluding ourselves. 
The writer remembers writing to people who at one point in their life joyfully accepted the confiscation of their property. That's how confident they had been in Jesus Christ. And he's writing to those people about be careful lest you have an evil unbelieving heart that leads you to fall away from the living God. And he means what he says. So what do we do? What's the remedy? First, mutual encouragement, verse 13. Exhort one another every day. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We have a mutual responsibility, every one of us, to each other, to one another. And we're, and we're called to do this all the time, nonstop, every day. Why? Why? Well, because people are prone to wander. You are. I am. And sin is deceptive, and what it does is it hardens a heart so that before where someone had been a sponge, able to hear and respond to the word of God, what sin does, it comes and deceives so that, that people think everything is fine and they're following the, 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 the will of God and they've never been better with God and they can't hear when you give warnings from Scripture. Their heart is hard. And they don't hear it. They don't see it. They don't believe it. And it happens not just to other people. It happens to you. It happens to me. That's what we're up against. And if people do not hold firmly to the end, they do not share in Christ. That's what the text says. It doesn't matter what you professed last year. What do you profess today? What's your hope today? What's your confidence today? Friends, this is serious, this is serious business. And so we need to encourage each other. And that encouragement isn't just a slap on the back. That encouragement is, a, is an eye-to-eye, heart-to-heart, brother, sister. What's going on? I'm concerned. You have this sin pattern in your, in your life, and, and I, I, can't, I can't get through to you. You, you don't seem to realize what this is. You don't seem to, you don't seem to realize what... what what you're doing and what you're risking. What, what, what's going on? See, the, the writer goes on, verse chapter 4, 1, Therefore, while the promise of entering this rest stands, let us fear lest any of you should have failed to have reached it. <clears throat> There's a gospel fear here. And in your bulletin it says faith. Uh, it should say fear in your outline. Gospel fear. That's what he's saying. Now, there's good news. The promise still stands. The promise of entering God's rest. And those who believe will enter it. But you see, he, he names two groups of people here. There's those who enter the rest and because they're united by faith with those who listened to the message. And then there's, there are others, you see, who, who don't respond in faith. The message was of no benefit to them. Now, it doesn't mean they didn't maybe assent to it in some sense. They, they would say, well, I agree with that stuff. Well, the devil agrees with that stuff. 
That's not faith. If you're sitting here this morning and, and you're saying, uh, you know, sort of this through your sleepy eyes and sleepy heart and sleepy mind, well, I, I agree with all that stuff. Yeah, so does the devil. And he has the sense to tremble. That's not the faith that, that, that God gives. That's not the faith that unites you to the saints and to Christ. The, the faith you see that unites you is, is a faith that leans into this. It says, it's, a, it's a conviction, you see, of things not seen. It, it's, I'm absolutely confident this is the only truth that matters. I need this message. I, I, I receive this message with everything that I have. I want this Jesus. I want this rest. And the only people that exist, friends, are those who, who have it and those who don't. The good news came to us just like it came to them. The gospel came to us just like the gospel came to them, but the message that they heard didn't benefit them because they were not united with faith to those who listened. And so, so what is this rest? And we'll wrap up with this. What is this rest? How do we enter it? And when will we receive it? Uh, he talks about God's rest. I don't have time this morning to, to unpack all this. It's a wonderful study. He's not talking primarily here about uh, what you do on Sunday. He's talking about the promise of entering the rest of God. It's this, it's this massive uh, idea that runs all the way through Scripture. In fact, he goes back and quotes Genesis 2, when God uh, rested on the seventh day from all of his work. The rest of God is his deep enjoyment and satisfaction and accomplishment where, where God set out to create a world, a universe and then uh, out of nothing and by the word of his mouth and then he made a man and a woman made in his image and likeness and he, and he invited them to walk there in that garden, that beautiful garden and God communed with them and invited them to enjoy uh, to enter into and share the joy and satisfaction that God has in his accomplished creation. That's what God is celebrating on the seventh day. And the seventh day doesn't have an evening and a morning, does it? He has entered into his rest. And the writer says, God's invited you and me through the gospel into that rest. Verse four, 3, verse A, we who have believed enter that rest. Are you harried? Are you troubled? Are you sad? There's a rest, friends. God's rest. And you enter it not by working you don't enter it by being the best Christian you know how to be and, and, and trying to clean up your act and, 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 and doing certain religious exercise. You don't, you don't enter it by, by working. You rest from your work and you run to Jesus Christ and, and receive his work on your behalf by faith. I think the best statement of uh, what does Sabbath mean is found in the Heidelberg Catechism. You can look it up. What does it mean to rest? It means to rest from my working. It means to rest in Christ's accomplished work. That's the good news, that Jesus Christ has done what we could not do, and that we, as we come to Jesus Christ, we enter into that world of, of enjoyment, satisfaction, and accomplishment. So when Jesus says on the cross, it is finished, you see, it, it's echoing um, Genesis chapter 2. And God saw 
what he had made. And it was very good. And Jesus saw what he had accomplished. And it was very good. Jesus saw the new heaven and the new earth unfolding there from the foot of the cross and blossoming in the grave as Jesus was raised to life. And it was very good. That is the rest of God. And God invites you and me to that. That's the good news that Joshua received. You see, that was the land of promise. That's what it was about. It was foreshadowing the eternal rest. But God says to uh, the people of Israel in Exodus 33, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Friends, that's exactly what we need to believe as we live this life. My presence will be with you and I will give you rest. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Friends, we haven't been saved just for this life. You don't, you don't exist for this life. The gospel message includes all the blessings of, of Christ that, that we can experience here and now, the presence of God and forgiveness of sin and the, and the communion with the Holy Spirit and the blessing of being part of the body of Christ. But, but, the, but the most of it is yet to come. There's a a coming country, a better country. In chapter 11, it talks about these people who are longing for a better country. If they wanted to, they could have gone back. Just like the people in Israel who said, let's just go back to Egypt. And and just like you and I today, who we could say, "Let's let's just settle for the American dream. Let's just do the best we can with what we have and call it good enough. And let's stop looking for that better country. But you see, if you, you lose everything then. God's children don't don't make that decision. God's children say, no matter what I have in this life, it can't compare to what is yet to come. And it's coming soon. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not yet seen. And friends, it'll make a difference, you see, in your life. Let me just wrap with that. It's going to give you patience and it's going to give me patience and endurance and joy on the gloomy, gray, hard, long days. Because we're going to anticipate something better. Paul says, Romans 8, 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in me. If you want to, if you want to have a wonderful experience, go down to Haiti and visit with um, the believing saints who don't have anything except a big smile on their face and deep joy in their heart in the midst of incredible suffering because they've given up on this world a long time ago. Of course, those people live here too. Let's be those people. We've given up on this world. This isn't our life. It's not our home, not ultimately. We're looking for a better country. People who speak thus, Hebrews eleven fourteen, make it clear they're seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of the land from which they'd gone out, they would have had opportunities to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. He's prepared for you a city. No more crying, no more death, no more tears, no more pain. But most importantly of all, Jesus, face to face. In a new heaven and a new earth. That's what Christ has come to accomplish. 
That's what we look to. That's what we hope for. That's what we anticipate. And then it changes the way we live this life. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 4, these light and momentary troubles that we experience, that you experience, that I experience, are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Isn't it astonishing what God has done for you in Christ? Friend, what are you looking for? What are you hoping for? What are you anticipating? Make this the object. As you consider Jesus, as you live this life, waiting for what is yet to come, the rest, the promise of the rest still stands. May God grant that we all one day enjoy it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you know our hearts. Lord, some of us are really tired. And maybe we've been tempted to just give up and settle for what we can enjoy here and now. And stop believing and hoping and, and that's what's happened to all of our joy. Lord, some of us, the truth is that joy has not been a part of our Christian experience for a long time. And it's not because you failed to be faithful or, or good, but we've got our eyes on the wrong things. And we've lost, we've forgotten about our confidence. We've forgotten about our hope. We've forgotten about the rest, the better country. So, Lord, I, I pray that you would forgive us. And, Lord, I pray that there be none here who, having seen all these things and tasted all these goodness, goodnesses of God, uh, that they would not fall away. And, Lord, for those who are, are wandering today because of the deceptive power of sin, oh, God, please have mercy, and may we be faithful to, to reach out and warn and encourage I thank you, Lord, that you are able to complete the work that you've begun, and I thank you, Lord, that you promise to do that as we look to Jesus. Keep us looking to him. Thank you so much for your word. Apply it, Lord, powerfully and transformingly to our lives, that this message uh, makes a difference in how we're going to do Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. It's going to change how we relate to our spouse and how we think about our kids and what we do with ongoing difficulties and sicknesses where our heart goes when things aren't working out. Because, oh, Father, we, we are so rich and so blessed. And the hope that you give to us in Christ is so glorious. So, Father, press it home. Make it real. In Jesus' name, amen.